This is the S2G Podcast, where we explore some of the most exciting solutions powering the food, agriculture, oceans, and energy transitions. I'm your host, Tanya Bakrasis. In this episode, we're looking back at some of the trends we were watching in 2023 to see how they're faring today. As a reminder, this content is for informational purposes only. It should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investor or potential investor in any investment vehicle sponsored by S2G. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Specific companies mentioned in this podcast are for educational purposes and should not be construed as an endorsement of any kind. Please note that S2G may maintain investments in some of the companies discussed on this podcast. For more important information, please see s2gventures.com slash disclosures. Last year, we put out a report entitled Trends Shaping the Future of Food in 2023. A year later, I checked in with our team members who contributed to the report to get their take on how these trends are holding up. After all, the last few years have been marked by unpredictability. Our team published a blog post with short recaps on all of the trends, but we figured the podcast would be a great opportunity to go deeper into a few that have had interesting developments over the past year. In this episode, we cover three ag tech trends. First up, I interviewed Arthur Chow about our robotics trend. As a quick recap, we predicted that robotics would be deployed on farms at commercial scale. Our report discussed that while single-use robotics currently dominate, these solutions would evolve into platforms, and that companies with major commercial sales would have a competitive advantage. Additionally, we anticipated that large agricultural machinery companies struggling to innovate would invest in mergers and acquisitions. So here's Arthur. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Tanya. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you for joining today. It would be great if you could kick things off and say your name and your role and what you do here at S2G. Sure. My name is Arthur Chow. I'm a vice president at S2G on the investments team specifically focused on food and agriculture. So I worked on both our portfolio side and portfolio management, as well as looking at new deals and sourcing diligence and execution. Amazing. And you are someone who has gone pretty deep into the subsector of robotics. So we're here today to pick your brain a little bit about this trend and theme and what's happened this year and where we're going. As you know, we worked together on a Outlook in March. And one of the things you said in that report was that several companies are booking revenues in excess of seven figures and developing into viable businesses with real commercial use cases. So super curious to start our conversation today and understand a little bit of like, how has this played out this year? What have you seen? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Particularly when we talked about booking revenue is often different than actually delivering revenue. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of the companies that have made promises in booking revenue are actually delivering on those. Um, I think it's particularly further along in the autonomous weeding space, but they have a strong backlog of demand. And I think the next big question now is, can those folks really further expand and their customers, you know, where they've proven sort of the land model, they now need to expand to be an enterprise solution. Mm. And is it just trying on a few parts of the field or are you really looking across all your acres? And I think that there is getting more traction there, but it, again, it's not ubiquitous. There's still some regulatory issues, I think, around 
California and OSHA safety laws and others that have slowed down some segments, perhaps on the autonomous tractor side. But mm. overall, I think there is progress that's being made and really commercialization that's happening now finally on the farm and at scale. Interesting. Are there other use cases that you think have similar momentum or are catching up momentum-wise? I think so, particularly in the, I would call it on the platform side, where, you know, right now it's still not the easiest to navigate on the farm to go through rows, especially if there's people or other humans in the loop there. And there's a couple of companies, Burrow being one of one of our own uh, portfolio companies, but as well as FarmNG, NIO, and a couple other uh, platform plays out there that think about really focusing on mobility and autonomy. And again, another a hard area, but um, I think with the advances of computer vision, not so impossible of a problem to tackle, um, where they're also seeing traction. So far, there's been a lot more application plays around mm-hmm. a specific you know, point solution. And I think the platform side now, there's, there's infrastructure being built around how do you, even if you have a mechanical arm that works really well, how do you get that out into the field? Or mm-hmm. how do you get sensors out into the field in, in a certain way? The, the platforms are well as taking off. So interesting. Beyond the what you just mentioned around moving towards the infrastructure plays, is there has there been any exciting developments in agrobotics this year? Probably two things to me. One I touched upon a little bit is around sort of the the new channels that are developing. Overall, it's very hard to scale direct sales when you're just talking to growers and trying to sell one farm at a time. And so the companies that are having hardened reliability within their robots, they're um, getting attraction from um, ag rental dealers. So mm-hmm. one example, again, going back to Burrow, is they've partnered with Pacific Ag Rentals, or PAR. PAR is usually managing just your standard equipment, tractors and trailers, hitches, and things like that. They've started to take an interest in robotics and automation and seeing that finally there is ROI for the customer. These are getting to be proven out. They're actually willing to then take that, buy the robots off Burrow, for example, and then manage the fleet there and actually manage those rentals nice. somewhere. Burrow doesn't have, no longer has to feel the huge sales force and team to actually manage different robots and move, you know, robots from one farm to another mm-hmm. across the fleet. That really, I think, enables scale. And so that's really exciting to see that. The other area I think is interesting is that you know, we talked about those applications and sort of point solutions, and that's a mm-hmm. big knock where folks have said, you're helping me with this one simple problem, but I, I need all this, I need these five other things. Yeah. And on the robotic side, it's or the company side, it's really hard to try to focus on all those five things and not burn through a lot of money at once. So you have to stay focused in somewhat of a, of a niche in what you're serving and really kind of nailing that use case. And so, the but the companies that are actually deciding partnering with each other and, you know, in that FarmNG side or the borough side where if they're working on just the the mobility autonomy side of things and just getting around the farm. Um, they're partnering now with those types of scouting companies, mm-hmm. with even a pollinator, for example, who's got kind of an automated pollination machine. Burrow doesn't want to do that, but they can actually partner with those companies. So mm-hmm. that's exciting when you're starting to see startups even partner together. How do we serve yeah. a customer overall rather than just thinking about their, their one solution? Super interesting. I know one of the drivers for all of this is labor challenges, you know, on farm and that I assume continues to be an issue, but can you talk a little bit about how this, you know, these types of technologies are changing the workforce, changing what operations on a farm looks like, and is that driving, you know, are we seeing more adoption? I, I think certainly. When I attended the uh, FIRA conference, FIRA USA, back in Salinas in September, it was maybe one of the biggest topics out there around our, our labor force is changing and how do we continue to attract the right talent if we're going towards this route of automation mechanization and sometimes really advanced scientific you know, AI, 
on computer vision and that when these robots break down, in the past, farmers have had a lot of mistrust in terms of adoption because they don't have the farm help or the mm-hmm. expertise themselves to, to solve a problem. That, I think that speaks to the need, though, that you know, there is a, a long-run need and demand for this type of labor. And I think you start really at that high school, college level of getting folks interested in, in ag mm-hmm. and where there's, you know, I think, still um, very interesting, hopefully lucrative opportunities. But a lot mm-hmm. of folks are that they're in Silicon Valley or studying in grad school and Stanford and some very excellent schools are, you know, staying in Silicon Valley on the software side. And it's about a question about how do we bring those folks down and really get them mm-hmm. excited about what's happening in Salinas. How do you think about from the adoption side, you know, the price point question? So, you know, obviously a lot of these robotics still have a pretty high price point, you know, and large farmers can accommodate that and it's driving them being some of the early adopters. But how do we think about scaling this automation to smaller farms and making it really feasible for them too? I think what's really key then is, you know, robotics as a service or mm-hmm. something harvesting as a service and I think is best suited for their type of pricing and business yeah. model. Um, at the same time, robot as a service has proven to be hard economics for the company and to be able to, as I said, manage a fleet across, you know, yeah. you manage your fleet across multiple customers. Um, you're thinking about asset utilization and you have to pay for those robots yourself and where you're going to get sort of that capital and you hopefully don't want to take VC dollars necessarily to just fund hardware and CapEx needs. And so I think it's a, you know, it's still an early, I'd say, nascent market on the financing side for debt financing to to be able to provide that mm-hmm. capital yet, particularly for the early stage companies. So I think there needs to sort of be a, a way to figure out how that RAS model could work for the robotic companies themselves and where they can offer it you know, beyond yeah. more than just a demo and a true true service in the long run. That's how I think you can start to reach that smaller tail end of farmers, which still happens to be 90 plus percent of the farms yeah, in the U.S. Yeah. Interesting. As you think about robotics more broadly, I know you you do look beyond the farm and, you know, as an investor, you're looking across the whole food system. Do you see any parallels with how robotics are being used in different places across the value chain? I think in in many ways, ag can take a look at sort of what's happening across the rest of the value chain and say, this is a model we can emulate where there has Mm -hmm. been, I think, more scale um, reached and more commercialization reached. Um, particularly, I'd say indoor warehousing. It's it's easier, frankly, when you have a controlled environment. And so overall, that's why they have seen, I think, broader scale and adoption there and into points where there's also been bigger exits. But it, it creates a good blueprint of how those companies have built their contracts and ultimately yeah. how they're actually adding value right away and then able to broaden their, their um, addressable market versus mm-hmm where I think robotics and, and ag, you need to be more specialized at first and, and build in a niche yeah. um, because it's just, it's hard a hard thing to do. But um, from there, th- there's a big question about how can you expand into different areas and different you know, end markets that are adjacent beyond ag. As you look ahead to the new year, is there anything you're really excited about or you think that we'll see develop within the robotics space in the coming 12 months or so? I've talked to a number of early stage companies that are focused more on this dexterity side now in that touch and feel side of things and mm-hmm. especially gripping dexterity, which has been hard. I think that is starting. There's been some gains there just technologically wise that could enable those types of companies to actually have success. And so what you're seeing now is they're starting in the pack houses, not quite on the field, but still dealing with random tomato shapes or <laughs> random stone fruit, whatever you may have it. They're getting to, I think, commercial viability there and picking that, and that can eventually hopefully one translate to actually directly on the farm. 
Is there anything else we haven't covered that you'd like to mention to our listeners? I think overall, you know, we talked a lot about farm agrobotics, but still very much interested in automation that's happening in the restaurant side and food service. Mm. Automation, as I mentioned, is happening in the middle of the supply chain. So you think of us as automation folks who are interested in all of that. And, yeah. Um, yeah, overall excited about what we'll see next year. Awesome. Thanks so much, Arthur. We appreciate you sharing your insights. Great. Thank you, Tanya. With acute labor shortages and an increased focus on platform solutions, as well as growing opportunities for hardware as a service, this trend seems to be holding steady going into 2024. Next, I spoke to Christina Rohr about digital ag tech solutions and specifically our prediction that digital technologies will enable climate smart farming on land and at sea. In our report, we said that accounting for environmental outcomes is no longer an option, but rather an imperative for companies to remain financially viable in the face of today's climate crisis. We forecasted that we are currently crossing the chasm between early adopters to farmers who are more risk-averse, but are motivated by proof of improved ROI. Our expectation was that digital technologies that can enhance access to markets and generate better production results and profitability will be the ultimate drivers of widespread adoption. Here's Christina. Christina, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you here. We'd love for you to start by just introducing yourself and your role at S2G, if you can. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Christina Rohr, and I'm a managing director on the Food and Ag team. I invest across the food value chain in companies that have the potential to create better outcomes for the environment and human health. Amazing. You have covered a lot this year. I'm excited to dig in with you on digital ad tech, what you're seeing there from your portfolio companies and what's what's happened this year and how that's transforming both solutions for farmers, profitability for farmers, what you know they're facing as they try to implement these tools. And specifically, you said measurement and analytical tools are becoming more integrated and better equipped to quantify the cross-value chain benefits of climate-smart agriculture. As digital technologies scale to more farms, they will provide new insights and opportunities to optimize environmental and economic outcomes for all stakeholders. So reflecting on that, we'd love to start with um, your perspectives on how the sector has fared this year and any you know key moments that you think are worth raising. Yeah, definitely. So over the past year, we've definitely seen an uptick in the deployment of digital technologies in agriculture. In my view, precision has moved beyond being just a buzzword and it's now being incorporated. It's an integral part of everything from product development to marketing. And the incorporation of digital tech is expanding and it's bringing substantial benefits to farming practices. One thing that's exciting is the partnership between, for example, Trace Genomics and CHS, a large uh, retailer here in the United States. Trace is diving deep into the soil with metagenomics, bringing to light data that we've never had before. They're writing the rules on how we understand soil and its needs, and it's about pinpointing the accuracy, getting just what's needed, where it's needed, and the payoff of that is huge. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing that scalability is on a good path, too. So Earth Optics, a digital soil mapping company, reached a million acres. And this is not just an arbitrary milestone. It's a significant step forward in providing data on carbon and MPK measurements. And this is in a way that's cheaper and more scalable. Can you talk a little bit about why you think this trend is continuing to accelerate? And maybe from a farmer's perspective, what are some of the challenges that 
have now been sort of resolved that's like helping this momentum proceed forward? In terms of the technologies that are getting traction, it's not only solving for a technological or product innovation, it's also coming along with a solid business model and go-to-market mm-hmm. strategy. And so companies are becoming more thoughtful in terms of what is a clear use case for my technology. And in terms of go-to-market, what is the best path forward? What are the right partnerships to build there? As you mentioned, you know, the backdrop for doing this hasn't been the most promising. There have been concerns over unclear value propositions, cost, and a saturated market have made it challenging for farmers to discern what are the right type of solutions for their their farming needs. And in this backdrop, you know, some of the areas that we're seeing traction, as we talked about, is around precision technologies. And these come along with a very clear value proposition. Mm -hmm. Centera is a good example of that. The weed precision management aspect is providing a clear value proposition. It's reducing herbicide. But what's also interesting is they're making viable products that were not before economically feasible to be applied at larger scales. But it's not just about the technology. It's building the partnerships and demonstrations of the technologies, as well as proving out the unit economics that are key for Mm -hmm. for driving adoption. Very interesting. It's so exciting to see all these partnerships this year. One of the things we talk about a lot is that farmers are inundated with lots of different point solutions, like technology that does one XYZ thing versus another. How have you seen that evolve? And anything to say there about how, you know, the shift to data collection is transforming on the farm gate? Yeah, and I think the topic of data infrastructure has been top of mind for stakeholders across the value chain. There is a lot of value that can be provided for aggregating the data and making this e- the use cases actionable and everyone can benefit. Uh, what what we're seeing is there are definitely partnerships that are being built in the space between the large corporations and there are also independent players, for example, like our portfolio company, Leaf, and they're working on making data integration, API integration, and using data in a way that's cleaner, more standardized, so that companies can build their use cases in a way that's more I- effective and can be more cost efficient. So we're seeing innovation not just in the solutions themselves, but also in the areas that can help integrate this data and make it um, more more actionable than before. This trend seems to be on track, but companies must ensure they are proving ROI for farmers. Next is a conversation with Matt Walker about our prediction that nascent input technologies would become mainstream. We said that demand for alternative inputs spiked as chemical input prices skyrocketed and that consumers are looking for foods with minimal environmental impact while CPGs are committing to reducing emissions in their supply chains. Here's Matt. Matt, thank you so much for joining the S2G podcast today. It's great to have you here. Just to start off, can you introduce yourself and your role here for our listeners? Yeah, so uh, my name is Matt Walker. I am a managing director in the food and ag group at S2G Ventures. And you've been here a long time. Tell us about uh, how long you've been here. I've been since 2014, so um, right at inception, really. So during the trends report, you said that the need is as critical as ever to fill the vacuum for environmentally friendly, effective inputs. We believe the time is now for alternative input solutions to achieve large scale adoption and impact. So we'd love to just kick things off by hearing how would you say this prediction has fared this year? 
I would say the time is now. I, th- I think the, the demand drivers are there. The needs are there. The need for impact is there. We had made some comments about some of these nascent technologies becoming mainstream this year. And I would say that's a bit of a yes, sort of. And I think a lot of the change that we're trying to see in the food and ag system is going to take much more than a year mm-hmm. to develop. So I don't know if there are necessarily a, a shift to this being mainstream in 2023, but I think the drivers st- are still there and we see a lot of progress. I think specifically, if we want to get into what we said last year at the beginning of this year, there's a lot there. And I think some of those things have happened. Some of those things will continue to happen. Yep. And so I think we can kind of parse that out if that's helpful. To yeah, do. that would be great. Yeah. So the first thing we said was that we expected demand for biologicals to increase for due to several factors. One of them was spikes in chemical input prices. This one is a sort of. We do indeed see that demand for biologicals and other technologies is spurred in part by changes in the market for mm-hmm. traditional chemicals. However, chemical input pricing or you know the traditional inputs right now are not more expensive than last year. They're actually cheaper, mm. quite a bit cheaper. In some cases, as much as 30% less than we saw at wow. the beginning of the year or last year. We were at historical highs a year ago. Yeah. So coming down 30 or you know sometimes 30 plus percent from the prices we were right. at a year ago, we're still at elevated prices. Yeah. And the other dimension there is it's also the case that availability is either limited or it's less mm-hmm. stable than it may have been in, in the past. And I think the point to note is that we do live in an increasingly unpredictable world. And some of the supply chain disruptions that we see, they may be short term on an individual basis, but I think they're expected to reflect the reality on a going forward basis. Mm-hmm. And so that variability is the norm that we expect to see. And I, st- I think we do continue to see that playing out and saw that playing out this year. To the point about novel input demand growing due to consumer preference, this is another one where I think there's a there's a yes sort of. And if you look at organic as a proxy for this in some cases, although it isn't always clear why Mm -hmm. consumers buy organic, consumers view organic as healthier for them and generally as Mm -hmm. pesticide free. So you use organic as a proxy for some of these novel inputs and the like. We actually saw marginal growth in 2023, but in some cases, actual declines in volume. A lot of that has to do with price increases across the board and certain Mm -hmm. consumers substituting with non-organic products. To be sure, we do still expect organic products, regenerative products, and others that are produced in a way that it's healthier for the environment and for humanity to take share if they can be affordably produced Mm -hmm. and provided. So so there will be a natural increase in demand for inputs that allow for production of those products. And and this is also core to our thesis at S2G. You know, this is the consumer voting with their pocketbook yeah. and the industry doing what it does, which is attempting to serve the consumer in accordance with their preferences. How do you think farmers are thinking about these alternatives at this point? I mean, you talk through the price and that's obviously a huge driver. But as you mentioned, you know, we're really trying to think about these as being good for the environment, but also a good business case and solving pain points in the industries. I think as companies continue to mature in the space and prove efficacy and have product that's available, Mm -hmm. um, these solutions become easy choices for farmers. Yeah. And and that's a thing that we see. I mean, we're seeing with certain companies in our portfolio starting to scale their revenue. And you you see repeat purchase, but you see Mm -hmm. repeat purchase on greater acreage than you saw before. I mean, I think a lot of the concern is, okay, you may have 
uh, lesser off target impact in the yeah. environment, but does this work? Mm-hmm. Um, does it work year after year? Does it work on this particular type of soil for this right. particular crop? And so over time, when we get more data points and, and you yeah. know, positive, then I, I think it's a much easier sell and it's easier for people in the market to make a, you know, critical purchase decision for their inputs, for their pest controls and the like when, when they know yeah. this is something that's going to work. So I think that's continuing to evolve in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. Are there any exciting moments related to that that you've seen this year? And you mentioned a few portfolio companies, but anything you'd like to call out as being a solution in particular that has had some of those successes? I think there are quite a few. As as we're talking about customer adoption, New Leaf Symbiotics, you know, they have a um, pink pigmented facultated methylotrope solution. And um, you might and have to uh, <laughs> define that one for our listeners. PPFMs exist in nature today, and they enhance the ability of the crops that we grow to either uptake nutrients or to be more resilient in the environment. And we've seen actually significant repeat purchase and sizable purchase for New Leaf in their products. And I think that's a company that is off to the races. We're very excited to see that one. That one is one that are they mainstream the size of the markets that we're going after and the size of these companies are still somewhat disconnected, but they're certainly on their way. Yeah, um, very exciting. And, and the sky is the limit. There's another green light biosciences. This is more about regulation, mm-hmm. but we are extremely excited about the first EPA approval for an RNA foliar applied pest control. Um, this is for Colorado potato beetle. Mm-hmm. And what's exciting about that is you kind of get the best of both worlds with chemical and biological there. This is a chemical with known mode of action, but it is surgically precise. And we know that there are virtually no off-target impacts for application of these RNA-based mm-hmm. uh, controls. And one of the things that's notable about the approval for RNA is that the EPA, in making this approval, created a new group mm-hmm. within the EPA for a new wow. pathway for RNA-based interventions. That's interesting because this isn't a one-off solution, you know, for them to create this new group. They're, they're, they're hoping that other products come through this pathway. Mm-hmm. This is a molecule and this is a pathway that can be used for a host of different interventions and different types of pests. So insecticides, fungicides, and the like. And so, yeah. you know, we're very excited about that one. Early days there, but, you know, getting that approval is a, is a large validator as well. Yeah. You mentioned regulation as one of the the steps in the process and maybe, you know, one of the hurdles to be addressed as these type of products come to market. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what are the other roadblocks and and how are you seeing those change throughout the coming year? What's holding up progress, I guess? Some of this just takes time. I think if you think about, you know, row crop solutions, doing trials Mm -hmm. in, in the field. I mean, you can you can increase the number of acres on which you're doing trials. You can move to different geographies. But it takes a period of yeah. years to do these trials. And a lot of these crops, you know, there's one season a year. Right. It's if you want many seasons, you need many years of trial. That's just the reality of the markets that we're working in here. And one of the other, I don't know if you call it a, a roadblock, but this is a consideration that we pay attention to mm-hmm. is does this product or solution work with the farmer today and the way that the farmer employs solutions today. So does it sit in the same tank? Can you spray it? Can it sit in the same warehouse 
and under the same temperature environments? Does it have rain fasting or UV protection and the like? Just making sure that the solutions that we're developing and that, you know, the entrepreneurs we work with are developing actually work with the existing system is something that we pay attention to. And so we're seeing some of those things come together. They take time. They're not always things that you can manage in parallel. Some of them have to be Mm -hmm. managed in sequence. Yeah. Which you raise a great point, which is how do you work within the frameworks and systems and ways of working that farmers are accustomed to? How much education is required here? Do you feel like farmers are understanding the, you know, emerging options available to them and how to apply them? Or is there anything else there to unpack? I think farmers are are offered a lot of different types of solutions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this notion of being offered a lot of snake oil. I really think it's incumbent upon these companies and on industry to actually show that you have proof of efficacy. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things with respect to biologicals in particular is perhaps a a lack of understanding of mode of action. It's sort of the correlation-based solutions. Employ this solution, it seems to result in greater fitness or it seems to result in, you know, lower pest pressures, but you don't necessarily know why. It's harder for a farmer yeah. to say, yeah, well, I will use that on, on my precious assets. It's not that the farmer needs education. I think it's, it's incumbent upon these companies to have the materials mm-hmm. and get the word out about their products. Right. Totally makes sense. We touched on this a bit, but as we look ahead to the next few years and recognizing this is a journey that doesn't change in 24 months, but how do you see biologicals and other alternative crop inputs fitting into farmers' operations in the coming few years? Well, at a greater scale. You know, yeah, I, I, I'm we very hope. excited about that. And I think in reality, some of the, one of the, I don't know if it's a roadblock either, but production capacities have to expand right. as well. The infrastructure for production and distribution has to expand as well before you see some of this stuff mm-hmm. get massive scale. Yeah, I think we're going to, in the next few years, you're going to see some companies march down that path toward greater scale and greater mm-hmm. scaled adoption. One other point I want to note is that when we talk about the price of conventional inputs and chemicals and we talk about the efficacy of conventional yeah. inputs and consumer trends, all of these relate to the economic case for adoption. Right. And and that's important because our predictions are based on what we believe will be driven by market forces. And we do believe there are novel technologies, biologicals and the like that will allow the farmer to profitably produce food in a way that's better for the environment, healthier for the consumer, and critically is affordable. And we think there are good businesses being built around these technologies and and solutions. While this trend is one that inherently takes time to prove out, there have been some really exciting developments, particularly the approval of Greenlight's first product, which has created a regulatory pathway for other RNA-based crop protection solutions. In our next episode, we'll review a few more trends, so look out for that. And check out our show notes for links to related blog posts and last year's trends report. Thank you for tuning in to S2G's Where We Grow From Here podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, or share it with a friend. For more information or to connect with us, check out s2gventures.com. Ventures.com.